if you have your Bibles or electronic devices, you can click to or turn to Acts chapter 2. We're only going to look at eight verses this morning. And so we've been walking verse by verse and word by word. And sometimes, in fact, is today we'll camp out in a couple of areas because I, listen, there is so much information uh, there is so much, I believe, for us through the book of Acts. And we're just going to walk through the first four chapters together, which is going to take us a little bit over 10 weeks, uh, to walk through and just look at the first church. Look at the principles that the first church had uh, and look at their priorities and then align our church with those, with those principles and with those priorities. And so this morning we're going to look at, and the title of the message is, is simply the, the powerful church. In other words, if you want power in a church... If you want power in your relationships, if you want God's power in your relationships, in your church, if you want God's power in your life, then there's some things that have to take place. There's, there, in other words, there's, there's, like this, there's like this formula that has to take place. There has to be unity. There has to be God's presence. And then you, you have God's power. And so when you look at, at these disciples and you look at where we, where we dropped off before I jumped ahead last weekend, I jumped ahead because of Vision Weekend. We'll talk about the things that they were devoted about and they were devoted to. And so we're jumping back right before Pentecost. We'll read that here in a few moments. But where we left off, Jesus had appeared to the disciples there at the Mount of Olives, and he told them to go to Jerusalem and, and wait, and wait and pray. And so that walk, and actually you can still walk this walk today. The walk from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem is like less than two, two-thirds of a mile. It's a short walk, and so the disciples probably made that walk in silence. They went to the upper room, about 120 in the upper room. Men and women and, and the family of Jesus were, you know, were gathered around, and they were praying, and, 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 uh, and, the Holy Spirit, and, and Jesus told them to go there and to wait. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll blow right through that issue of waiting, right? Uh, waiting is never easy. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, and we've talked about this. I, I don't like to wait, and you're probably the same. I mean, we, we, we want things right now. We, we don't want to have to wait on God to move in a relationship. We don't want to have to wait on God to answer a prayer. We don't want to have to wait on God's timing or any of those other things. If you're like me, we want it now. I mean, we want God to answer that prayer now. And so this morning, let, let me just tell you, if you're waiting on God to do something in your life, if you're waiting on God to do something in your family, if you're waiting on God to do something in a relationship, if you're waiting on God to do something in your health, if you're waiting on God to do something in your life to answer a prayer, let me just tell you this, God always answers. And God's timing is always perfect. And so a lot of times, it's, it's not waiting, doing nothing, it's, it's intentional waiting. Because in that period of waiting, a lot of times God does something in our life. God deepens us and God prepares us and, and God gives us the things that we need as, as before he answers these prayers. And so, so you have these disciples and, and 120 people are in this, this upper room. And, and let me just tell you, it's a small room. You can still see that room today. And it is a small room that 120 people gathered in. And they, they gathered together, they worshiped together, much like we're doing this morning. They gathered together, they worshiped together, they prayed together. They, oh, here's the most important thing that they did, they unified. They found unity in, in, in with one another. And, and, and then they began to pray, uh, prepare for the future. In other words, it was, it was intentional waiting. And so they'd wait in the upper room for about 10 days. They didn't know that the Holy Spirit was exactly going to come on Pentecost the word Pentecost simply means this, 50. It was 50 days, Pentecost. They celebrated it every year in Jerusalem. Uh, they celebrated it after the wheat harvest. 
and, and everybody from all different areas. fact is, the population of Jerusalem would swell greatly, and they would all come to Jerusalem, and they, they would, they, there's a festival, and they would worship together, and it was always 50 days after Pentecost. I'm sorry, after Passover. This would be 50 days after Jesus rose again. And so they came to this place in the upper room, and they did some things. They developed some things that would allow God's power in their life. And so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about this morning how to have God's power in your life, how to have God's power in your ministry, how to have God's power in a a church, how to have God's power even in relationships, even in marriage, because I'm telling you, these principles, these principles work in marriage, and these principles work in the local church as well. The first thing that these disciples had is they had unity. They had unity, and if you know anything about unity, unity is hard to get, right? Especially when you have people with different backgrounds, different personalities, different regions, all these other things different family origins and different family traditions, and you start putting all of these different people together, then unity, unity is not easy. Unity is not easy. Like when, when you get, you know, where two or three are gathered, there's going to be disunity, right? And unity is like, unity is hard to come by. Unity is something that happens as we're reconciled to God and we're reconciled to one another. Acts chapter 2 verse 1, we're going to walk through some tough verses this morning. I mean, I'm telling you for the next couple of weeks, we're going to swim in the deep end of the pool, and I hope that's okay with you. That may mean less jokes. So who knows? Acts chapter 2 verse 1, here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Acts chapter 1 verse 14, Acts chapter 2 verse 1 that we're looking at now, all of a sudden Luke stresses, he stresses this word togetherness. He stresses this word that the the disciples were together. A lot of times we can read this and we can skip over this. A lot of times we miss this. See, he's communicating that, that after 10 days preparing for the Holy Spirit, 10 days praying for other people, 10 days of building community, 10 days in that room, and it says the disciples were together. They were not, at, listen, they were not only in one place. In fact, is one translation, you may have that translation, says they were, they were in one accord. That meant they drove a Honda. I know that's bad. That's bad. It was just a small church. It was a small church. I, I remember when we get this church in one accord. And so, uh, I mean, when, when we were started out. And so all of a sudden, it says, it says they are, they are uh, of one accord. There is something about unity in the body of Christ. There is something about unity in the body of Christ that is supernatural. Because given to ourselves, we'll sow discard. Given to ourselves, it's all about us. It's all about our preferences. It's all about our likes. It's all about our dislikes. Given to ourselves, we will not find unity. Naturally, we, naturally, we do not gravitate towards unity. And all of a sudden, you find, because here's the deal. God's power never falls on a divided fellowship. God's, God can never bless where there's disunity where there's wars and fights and silos, God's power always gravitates towards unity. Unity is hard to come by. Unity is important in marriage, and unity is important in a family, and unity is important in the local church. If you want God's power in your relationships, if you want God's power in the local church, there has to be this thing called unity. 
In other words, to where you, you unify. This is not, this is not uniformity. Un, this is not uniformity to where we all, we all look alike, we all talk alike, we all dress alike, we all answer the questions exactly the same way. That would be called a cult. So this is not, listen, this is not, unity is not uniformity. Unity is this, is to where we as a body, to where we agree on the essentials of the faith. We agree on where we're headed. We agree on our goals. We agree on the essentials of the faith is who is Jesus and virgin birth and, and, uh, and he died and he rose again for the forgiveness of our sins, the authority of scripture, all of those things. We agree on the essentials of the faith as a local body. But it's also true in marriage, that in marriage, listen, if you don't have unity, you know, the Old Testament says this, how can two people uh, arrive at the same destination together if they don't agree on the path to go? In other words, this unity is for us to come to the place to where we understand that, you know what, we're in this together. You know what, we're, we're a team. Unity is this issue to where we come to those places in life to where we understand that, guess what, unity in Acts I mean, we've been life journaling through Acts. We've been life journaling through, through, through Exodus. We're going to talk about that. You find over and over that, you know what? They worked hard on this issue of unity. They worked hard on this issue of unity. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, he said, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. is because Paul knew where there is unity, there is great power. And you see this word in Acts chapter 2, together. And together means one of the same or like or similar it's the same place, it's together. It, it's this issue of, it's this issue of the, the church is intended to be a picture of the kingdom of God to where it's not a divided fellowship. It, it, it reflects the kingdom of God principles and not the kingdom of this world principles. I'm amazed at how this early church demonstrated unity and, and the links that they went to to develop unity. They were united in prayer. Men and women in, in the family of Jesus, they unit. And unity came out of this. They sought God together. They were united in their testimony and how they, the followers of Christ, and they were united in, listen, they were united in meeting needs and ministering to people and to the community. The early church, listen, I'm just telling you, when you start, 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 study the culture of the first and the second century, their society, their political system, it was darker than ours. It was way darker than ours. And you didn't have the local church railing and protesting and judging and condemning the world. You know what you had the early church doing in those days? They pressed into the world and they just started meeting needs. They started ministering to the community. They became light in a dark world. They, they started expressing the love of Jesus Christ and how things could be different. And they developed unity within their body. And so when you look at this, you realize that they were united in the way that they ministered to the community and helped people without judging them. They were united in worshiping together. They refuse, listen, they refuse the temptation to split or criticize one another on the non-essentials of the faith. When unity is happening in a body, when unity is happening in a marriage, is this. My name should be safe on your lips. And guess what? Your name should be safe on my lips. We don't criticize one another. We don't condemn one another. We don't gossip about one another. In marriage, let me just tell you, in marriage... The name of your spouse should be safe on your lips. And your name should be safe on their lips. That means when you're out with your buddies, when you're with your girlfriends, you are not sitting around trashing your husbands. You're not talking and you're not causing them to think differently 
of your spouse, if you want unity in relationships, that's to where you come to the place and said, you know what? Their name, their name is safe on my lips. See, the disciples in the early church, they got this. They understood this. And they, I think that's why it took them 10 days. I think that's why Jesus says you get in the upper room and you gather together, you worship together, you prepare. You, you find this issue of, of, of like unity. I think that's some of the things they had to work out. We'll talk about some of the personalities. I mean, I, I remember like I've never been in that exact situation, but I remember when we planted Fellowship of the Rockies, crazy times. Uh, we just came to Pueblo because of a promise, four families. And so uh, rental property was much different in Pueblo in those days. So you'd go look for a rental, a home to rent, and there could be like 30, and 30 to 60 applicants. Um, and they didn't like allow pets in those days because they didn't have to because so many people needed a place to rent. We had ripped our kids, you know, from school systems and grandparents. And last thing we were going to do is rip them from their, like their dog. I wasn't going to take their dog away. And so as a result of that, and, and Karen and the girls hadn't come yet, I, I came to Pueblo first, and then, then other families came that were planning the, the church. And here's the crazy deal. Four families lived in the same house at the same time. Unfortunately, it's longer than 10 days. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever lived through an experience like that. Like, a, like different families, you know, living together for, oh, oh my word. And so, <laughs> so like we signed confidentiality agreements, right? Man, it, it seemed like every night we were having family meetings. Like, what time are we going to go to bed? You know, some people like to stay up all night and make a lot of noise. Other people like to get up early. Other people had different habits and all these other things. And, and then all of a sudden, like, their habits get on, go, get on your nerves just like your habits get on their nerves. And you know what we had to do? We continually had family meetings. Now, we were gathering together. We were worshiping together. We were preparing to launch Fellowship of the Rockies and all of those other things. See, these early disciples, one of the things they did in those 10 days, and I think that's why Jesus told them, you guys need to go to the upper room and you need to gather and you need to pray and you need to prepare because he wanted them to find unity. He wanted them to come to this place. It's, it's almost, and I don't know if you've ever gone to a, like a surprise birthday party and uh, you, you arrive early and park your car like around the block and then you gather in the house and then and a lot of times, you know, you, you huddle up in a, a kitchen or a, a room off the, off the front room or a bedroom or whatever and you're there together Together, it's like oneness, it's the same goal, and all those other things, and you're waiting for the guest of honor up here. And then when the guest of honor, the birthday girl, the birthday boy, when they walk through the front door, what do you do? You all jump out together and say, surprise, happy birthday, and then, then, then it's a party. See, this is the same thing the disciples are doing. Jesus has told them the guest of honor is coming. And you sit, and you gather, and you worship, and you pray. And unity, I'm t unity... Unity is so difficult to find. Unity, unity is difficult to find, but it's, it's vital. Those early disciples were able to find it, and they knew it was crucial to their, their Christian faith. I mean, you can go and you can look at some of the personalities that were in the upper room. You take, uh, like, John, the apostle John. He was, like the, he was like the art, you know, he was like the musician. He was like the creative guy. He's like the dreamer. And you put him in the room with like Simon Peter that could be hot-headed or, or just say exactly what he feels at a moment notice. And all of a sudden you put those two guys together. I mean, how did they work that out? I'll tell you how they worked that out. They were first reconciled to God and then they were reconciled to one another. 
also, God began to change their personalities. Listen, we don't talk about this a lot in church. We talk about like, like spiritual maturity, right? But we don't talk about emotional maturity a whole lot in church. Can I just tell you this? Your emotional maturity is a reflection of your spiritual maturity. Why is it possible for someone to grow in their knowledge and love of God but not grow in their love of people? It's this issue of emotional maturity. A lot of us. A lot of us, the way, we, the way we handle relationships, the way we handle conflict, when conflict comes, whether it's in marriage or in church, the way we handle conflict is more out of a family origin instead of kingdom of God principles. It's more out of, well, this is the way my family handled. You know what? When I get upset, when you make me mad, I'm, I am going to let you have it. I am going to let it fly. I'm going to yell. I'm going to scream because you know why? That's the way we did it in our family. Or you know what, for me, whenever conflict comes, I'm just going to get quiet. I'm going to give you the silent treatment. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to talk about the issues. Why? Because that's how my family handled it. In my family, we never talked about the issues. And not my family, we just swept it under the rug until we couldn't sweep it in the rug, under the rug any longer. It just kind of all came out. And so as a result of that, we go through life and we don't develop in our love of people. I'm telling you, one of the most important things of the Christian life is being able just to simply practice the presence of people to where you, you grow in your love of God and you grow in your love of people to where you can go to people that you totally disagree with and show them the lo love of God and present the gospel to them and talk about this God that desires to come into relationship with them. And so everything changes. So you can look at Simon Peter's life, and you can see that something changed dramatically in his life. And all of a sudden, he progressed through to where he started treating people differently because his love of God grew and his love of people. That's why Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Oh, love your neighbor as yourself. I think the world should be able to look into the church and say, those people love each other. Those people are united. Those people may not grow, may not agree on everything. But they love one another. They pray for one another. They don't talk about each other. They don't criticize one another. They don't judge one another. I mean, the local church should show what the kingdom of God looks like. Second thing is this. They not, they not only had unity, they had his presence. They had God's presence because I'm telling you, God's presence gravitates to where there's unity. God's presence gravitates to where there's not unresolved issues, to where there's something different about these individuals of this group. Verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a, a mighty, listen, I'm having, it's just, I'm having to work on this word because sometimes I'm going to go back into my Texas accent and everybody's been trashing me all this weekend uh, about my Texas accent in a funny way. But mighty, how I would say it, Russian wind, okay? And so it's confused a lot of people. They're like, why is, it, why is the wind rushing and where, where's it coming from and all that other stuff? So, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
And then he goes on in verse, verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So all of a sudden, it just gets real. All of a sudden, it's like they're sitting in this home. They're this guest of honor. The Holy Spirit is appearing. And all of a sudden, it just got real. It got supernatural. It speaks of, I mean, the scripture speaks of a violent wind. It speaks of fire. It speaks of tongues. And so you have to ask, ask yourself, what, what was God or what was Luke trying to help us understand? Because verse 2 says it was, it, was, it was a violent wind or it was a r- rushing wind. But there was no wind. It, it just says a sound like a mighty rushing wind. When we read this verse, our attention needs to be on on the sound, the Greek word literally means like, like a hurricane. It literally means like, you know, like those red flag warnings in, in Colorado where you can't go outdoors, you can't ride a bike, you can't play golf, you can't do, and you're in your house. And, I mean, it's like rattling the windows and it's like rattling the trees and it's like this, it's like this sound. I mean, this is a sound like, 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 a, like a hurricane and they're in there and they're, they're praying. This is the moment that, that the Spirit appeared and God made his presence known and he turned up the volume. So everybody knew that he was in the room. Have, have, have you, has that ever happened to you? Has that ever happened to you where all of a sudden you realize that, you know what? God is here. God just made his presence known. We talk about this a lot in church, but I don't know that we ever define it. It's this issue of how do you know when you're in God's presence? I mean, how do you know when you're in the presence of God? I mean, there's some churches that will tell you it's all about, it's just all about emotion. It's about this issue of just emotion. It's like when things get, when things get crazy or when things get weird or when things get emotional. So is that what it is? Because listen, if, if you live your life based upon emotion, you will end up in the ditch. So how do you know? How do you know when you're in the presence of God? I think that's a real question. And I think it's something that is very important for us to answer. You can see this in Acts, and you can see this other places. So we've been life journaling. We've been life journaling through Acts. We've been life journaling through Exodus. And so a couple of weeks ago, we're, just, we're marching through Exodus, and all of a sudden, the definition just came in Scripture. And I, I just want to help you with that. Uh, this, is, this morning, this is just for free. Uh, I didn't even plan to talk about that this weekend. And so Exodus chapter 33. Here's the definition that we'll back through it in Scripture. When you know you're in God's presence is when God's Spirit makes the attributes of God come alive to you. When God's Spirit makes the attributes of God come alive to you. Exodus chapter 33, remember the story? Moses is going up to the mountain to, like, get the Ten Commandments. He's on his way up to the mountain. And so, he, and so God's there, and so Moses says, God, I, w- I want to see your face. I want, I, I want to see you. And so God answers him back and says, no, that's not going to happen because if you see me, uh, you'll, like, die. And so Moses goes pretty pleased, you know, pretty pleased with sugar on top. I, I really, like, want to see you. And God says, okay, says, I, I am going to pass by. And so Mo- God took Moses and push Moses into the cleft of the rock. Now, don't get hung up on the cleft of the rock. Theologians for thousands of years have been trying to figure out what it is, and they still can't figure it out. So don't get hung up on that. So God takes Moses. He pushes him into the cleft of the rock. He covers, he covers his face. And then watch this. In, in verse, verse 6, Exodus chapter 34, and it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So he's proclaiming this about himself. The Lord 
a God of mercy and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and, and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the, on the children and the children's children, the third and the fourth generation. Then watch this. It's just huge. Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped him because he was in the presence of God. Listen, the way that you know you're in the presence of God, and maybe this has happened to you, whether you're, whether you're, whether you're in a worship service like this, whether you're reading scripture on your own, or someone says something to you, that all of a sudden the attributes of God become, it's like alive to you. I mean, you ever been in a worship service, and all of a sudden you hear a lyric, or someone reads a scripture, and all of a sudden it's like, all of a sudden it's like the attributes of God just came alive to me. That his forgiveness runs deeper than any sin that I've ever committed. God deeply loves me. God will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And all of a sudden, Scripture just starts coming to your mind about the attributes of God. That he is gracious. That he is love loving. That he is kind. It, it can come in public or it can come in private. One of the places that, that my wife remembers the presence of God more than any other time in her life, and many of you know the story, our 32-year-old daughter, a couple of years back, was diagnosed with a, with a serious brain tumor. And the fact is, just a little update, Thursday was another MRI, and she got a clean scan, and we, we have been praising God since then. And so many of, many of you are on this journey as, is, is on this journey as well. And so we, we've kept the diagnosis and life expectancy and all that stuff. We've just kept that just private to our family. But right after she got the biopsy back, she called Karen. Karen was driving, and she, told, she said, hey, Mom, here's, here's the diagnosis. And Karen says, I, when I got off the phone with Brittany, I'd never felt the presence of God so thick in my car ever in my life. It wasn't anything really emotional. You know what it was? All of, a, all of a sudden, the Spirit made alive to care in the attributes of God. And she said, I, I, Scripture just started coming to me. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. You don't have to fear. I am a loving God. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will answer your prayers. And all of a sudden, this peace, I'm telling you, this issue of understanding the presence of God, that's why it's so important to life journal. That's why it's so important to read scripture. That's why it's so important to know scripture. I mean, the majority of the time when you, when you, when you see this issue of the filling of the Holy Spirit, it, man, it just came in a quiet, still place. And, in, and so you, you see this issue of it was just like loud in the house. But then you see this issue that it says that there's, there was fire in the house. And, and a lot of times, a lot of times we look at fire as something negative, like especially with forest fires or something that's destructive. Or, or when we think of scripture, we think of the, the devil or hell or the lake of fire and all those other negative things. But when you look at the, when you look at the Old Testament, you, you realize fire represented the presence of God. Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. Exodus chapter 13, the pillar of fire. Um, when, when God made a covenant with, with Abraham, they sealed it with fire, Genesis chapter 15. Um, the flame on the altar in Judges chapter 13. And so these are all elements of, of just like, like a picture of the presence of God. Hebrews 12, 29 says, our God is a, a consuming fire. In other words, God is a consuming fire. 
Acts chapter 2, I mean, fire came down, what it says, and rested on the disciples. And, and what it means is, is the manifested presence of God. That word manifested, manifested presence of God, we, we don't use that word a lot, but all manifest means is, is to make known. Like to manifest on a plane, it is to make known who the passengers are. That's all it is, is to make known the attributes of God. And so you have to ask yourself, why fire? I mean, it spreads, it burns, it, it purges, it illuminates, it smolders. And God was like preparing the disciples and said, you guys are going to spread the gospel like a wildfire. And now that you have the Holy Spirit, now that you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do what once was impossible to do, but you, you, can, you can do that. And in that moment, the sound like a violent rushing wind, um, rushing wind is loud. It's like a hurricane. And all of a sudden, it falls on these people. And the third thing that I haven't mentioned is, is he says it's, 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 like, it's like, like tongues. And so the, the big question, question that, that like theologians have had for thousands of years, was it, were they literal tongues? I mean, was it, was it literal tongues that, that, that fell on that day? Or was it just Luke's way of describing something that was happening? And so they've, they've argued this until like they're, they're like blue in the face about was it literal tongues? Was it figurative or whatever? Let me, let me tell you this. Here's what I'm 100% sure of that day. When, when fire fell from the sky and landed on the disciples, God did something amazing. Something supernatural happened as a result of that. And I am certain that he, listen, he empowered a group of ordinary people. And listen, no disrespect to you or to me, but that is good news to us. You know why? Because God uses ordinary people. God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. When they're able to find unity, when they're able to find this issue of unity and God's presence. The third and the last thing is this, is they had his power. First, they found unity. They found unity in the body. They found unity with one another. They found unity in this way that, you know what? We can work together. We're going to practice the presence of people, and we're going to practice the presence of God. We're going to agree on the essentials of the faith, and then, you know what? We're going to have great grace for the non-essentials of the faith. And so all of a sudden, God's power came, verse 5, as we walk through this. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So this is like, listen, this is like the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the, the time between old covenant Christians and new covenant Christians. And all of a sudden, when the fire fell on them, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. What once seemed impossible no longer seems, uh, what once seemed impossible no longer seems impossible. And now they're equipped to do what God has called them to do. To do. And God's timing is interesting. See, see a lot of times when we're waiting we're waiting on God. We're just waiting on the time of God. God's timing is perfect. See, God, God was waiting on Pentecost. God was waiting on Pentecost. Listen, 150,000 people would gather in, 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 in Jerusalem uh, for the, to celebrate the wheat harvest, to celebrate this Jewish holiday, this Jewish festival. And as a result of that, every people group would be represented there. Every people group would, would, would be there. And all of a sudden, God is waiting for that event and for that, that thing to happen. And, and listen, so many times waiting is hard for us. I remember when the girls were young, they had trouble waiting for like, like Christmas, like 10 days was like eternity for them. And so to help them learn to wait, we had one of those uh, Christmas calendars with the mouse that you move each day. 
And so as they would go to bed, they'd move the mouse, and that helped them with waiting. But they had no calendar. They had no mouse to move. These disciples are just sitting there and waiting. And so, but God's timing was perfect. He knew on Pentecost what would happen. And so verse 2, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what Jesus said would happen, happened. And you ever read scripture and says, I, I wish I could experience that. I mean, I wish I could experience a, a, a situation like that. I wish like tongues of fire would like fall on me and I'd hear that sound of a mighty rushing wind. I mean, that, that, would, be like a, that would be a cool worship service. Can I tell you this? And some people say, I wish I could, I could get full of the Holy Spirit or baptized in the Holy Spirit. But can I tell you this? If you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. There, there is one baptism. There is not one baptism and a second baptism. There is one baptism. Corinthians tells us this. There's only one baptism. Other places in Scripture tell us this. You either have the Spirit or you don't. If you have the Spirit, you're a believer. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a believer. Ephesians tells us this, that once we meet Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In other words, this, once you meet Christ, you get all the Holy Spirit you're going to get. There is not a second baptism. There are many fillings. There are many times when we get filled with the Holy Spirit, but there is only one baptism, and that's what they're experiencing here. And all of a sudden, the disciples have the power to do what God has called them to do, verse 4. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this is so important. We're going to deal with it, and we'll close and the, with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now, listen. The definition of tongues in this verse, you, you, you can look at the Greek definitions, and then also you can look at the context, and you can see what it is. It's easy. It's other known languages. So those filled with the Holy Spirit that day, they were able to speak for the purpose of the gospel other known languages. They were ever able to speak other known languages that they didn't know prior to Pentecost. How did they do that? The scripture says, is the Spirit gave utterance. This is amazing. He gave them ability to communicate with all different languages. Can you imagine if that happened to you? You'd never spoken in a foreign language, and all of a sudden you stand up and present the gospel, and you're naturally speaking in somebody else's language? This is a supernatural event that happened on that day. And the word tongues in this context is talking about, is talking about it. A, a known language. This is different than a spiritual gift of speaking in tongues or prayer language or anything like that. And in verse 5, he just goes on and he says, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, and from every nation under heaven. And at this sound of the multitude came together, they were bewildered because each one was hearing, so important, hearing them speak in his own language, known language. And so they, they're like perplexed and confused. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these people who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Then all of a sudden, Luke records all the list of people groups that were there. And we'll drop down to verse 11, and, and he says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So all of a sudden, it, we hear them. Verse 13, But others mocking said, they are filled with, with new wine. 
So this, this response of, of the coming of the Holy Spirit, this response of the filling of the Holy Spirit, some sneered and made fun and said, you know, this is ridiculous, they're drunk or whatever. And now all of a sudden you see the different responses of the audience. Like, like verse 6, some of the audience was, was, was bewildered what the Scripture says or confused. They had, they, had never, they had never seen this before. Verses 11 and 12, 12 says there's another group of people that were like astonished. They were amazed. They were perplexed. They were, they were curious. They wanted more information. They're trying to figure it out. Verse 13 says there was a group of people that were just skeptical, and they, 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 they sneered, and, and they rejected. But, but here's, what, here's what is so important that I want to point out about this, this text, about the moment when the Holy Spirit came. This was when the Holy Spirit landed. This was the first time. And from that very first moment of the coming of the Holy Spirit's presence on earth, from that moment, everyone on earth is just like this group of people. They've either received him or rejected him. There were some that were accepting him that day, and there were some that were rejecting him. There were some that were making fun of these people and saying, Christianity doesn't work, this is ridiculous. There were some that were saying, Christianity is a joke, it just doesn't make any sense, I can't believe this. Can I just tell you the same thing happens today? So let me just ask you a question, because I, I don't want you to walk away from here missing the focus of this passage. Have you received him? Or have you rejected him? Because of the focus of this passage is this. God has gone to great lengths to pursue you and to save you. If you know him, you can remember back and see how he pursued you. If you don't know him, if you have not received him, if you not have accepted him, then I'm here to tell you he is pursuing you today. He is trying to communicate to you to this day that he will go to great lengths to rescue you. That you are deeply loved by him. That his forgiveness runs deeper than any sin that you'll ever communicate. That he wants to forgive you and he wants to bring you into a right relationship with him so that you can find unity in your relationships you can handle relationships differently. You can be reconciled to him and you can be reconciled to others. So the question is, have you received him or have you rejected him? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?